Hey, Kingdom Roots friends, it's Chaz here. Wanted to let you know before our episode today about an opportunity that I really think you might be interested in. Uh, many of you have participated with Scott and I before in one of the webinars that we have done. And so I wanted to let you know that we're coming back with another webinar this October 24th. That's a Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central Time. And we'd love to have you join us as we discuss how to teach your church to read their Bible. It's so easy to tame the Bible and make it say what we want it to say. You know, more often than not, we just clip the wings of the Bible's message instead of letting it soar and challenge us to climb to new heights with our relationship with God. So in this webinar, you'll have an opportunity to learn from Scott, one of the, the leading New Testament scholars, on how to teach your church to read the Bible, because truthfully, there may be nothing more that could be more beneficial for your community to equip them to become more like Jesus. So uh, registration is not open yet, but it will be soon, and we don't want you to miss out. So wanted to put it on your radar that Tuesday, October 24th at 10 a.m., we'll be doing this webinar. So... Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. Scott, we are in one of the the one of the last two parable conversations that we have. Uh, what have you thought about these conversations that we've been having with our MANT cohort students? Well, because uh, this is a podcast and not a scripted uh, manuscript or typed uh, lecture, uh, they've gone in all sorts of directions. We've had stories being told, and we've had academic discussions. And we've had enlightenment, and so it's been it's been really good. Um, I'm very impressed with the students we have in our cohort, and their ability to articulate what these parables are about in their context, and to see through what the parable is saying uh, into our world as well. So it's been a good time. Yeah. And so, who do we have the pleasure of talking with today? And what's the parable that we're covering? Uh, we have with us Kelly Fabian. Uh, from the uh, Chicagoland area at Willow Creek. And we have Ben Davis, who is a pastor of a church in, uh, or he is a pastor in a big church in Wichita, uh, downtown Baptist Church. And we're looking at the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I thought I'd say a few things about it. I, uh, while we're talking here, I'm going to give a new look at the translation by David Bentley Hart, uh, to see how he uh, looks at this parable. I've looked at some other passages in this new translation that arrived in the mail today. But this is a parable about the Son of Man and the judgment when the Son of Man comes in his glory. So this is an allusion or at least a reference to uh, the, the second coming type event. And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, this is the idea of the Son of Man being vindicated in heaven, it's not, it's not so much a return to earth, but subsequent to that. And all the nations will be gathered before him and will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. 
And the complaint or the question, the surprise is um, that that the people say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Well, I, I should back up. The king will say that the basis of this judgment is I was hungry, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is saying, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. There's a lot of first-person singulars here, I and me. Well, the righteous, the sheep, will ask, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you, whenever, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Uh, here is a parable of judgment, uh, of some kind of scene in the eschaton, some kind of, it, it's a, a bit like Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. Some people have said it's, it's about the second coming exclusively, uh, so a judgment on earth or something like this. I think that can be discussed, and we will get to that. But at this point, we see it as a parable of judgment at some level, and it, it all has to do with how people responded to Jesus. And the surprise is the people say, well, well when did we see you? And his response is, uh, you saw me whenever you saw, and this is the expression, the least of these my brothers. That's the Greek, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever expression. Uh, the uh, NIV, the NRSV, that sort of uh, translation has whenever you saw uh, the the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So it becomes inclusive. So here we have a, a parable that has become very, very influential in the church today. I hear this parable quoted by nearly everybody, especially for people who are committed to social justice. And they see people in prison. They see the marginalized of the world as the brothers of Jesus the sisters of Jesus. Um, I hear this from, uh, this was very popular by Mother Teresa, who argued that, uh, uh, that, that we see Christ in every poor person in the world. Uh, so it has become a very popular parable, though uh, in the history of interpretation, uh, that interpretation has, has not nearly been as pervasive as people think today. So whenever I bring this up, People act like I'm from the moon or something. But I'm, I'm wondering how um, our, our conversationalists today, Kelly and Ben, uh, understand the parable, what they see as the big idea. And I thought I would begin with Kelly and then go to Ben, but uh, we can go the other way if that's what Kelly prefers. So I'll pass it over to Kelly, and then um, she has, the ball is in her court and people can always pass in these games. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. I can start. Um, okay. I guess what I would say is that based on my research and my reading, et cetera, I mean, there's no question that what you say 
is true that this is a parable, if it can be called that, about future judgment. But I would also say, and it seems to be that Jesus is saying a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. And in the in the assignment that you gave us, you asked us, what? how would you describe what Jesus is asking his disciples to imagine? And so as I thought about this parable, that's the question I focused on the most mm-hmm. for a long time. And I had several ideas about this and then landed on one, which I'll share because I think this gets to kind of, I don't know if it's a secondary meaning or the deeper meaning, however you want to say it about this parable. And that is, imagine a world where every person was treated with the dignity and honor of a king. Because if Jesus is saying, when you saw this person in prison, when you visited this person who was sick, you essentially did that to me. Perhaps what he means is, imagine if when you treated, worked with these people, talk to these these people or that person, you know, that you visited or you served in some way, imagine that you treated them as you would treat me. Mm-hmm. And so that's, in my view, the big idea I took away from it and the invitation that Jesus was extending to his disciples. Well, and, and you're right, because Jesus uses a judgment scene to inculcate that exact posture toward human beings um, in light of the judgment, this is how you are supposed mm-hmm. to live. If you're going to be judged on the basis of how you respond to these people, then he wants us to imagine a world now right. where we respond to people, uh, as you just said. And that it's a very important word that you bring in here, Kelly. Treat every person as if he or she is a king, because Jesus describes himself, the son of man here, as a king. Right. So the, so we are to imagine a world in which we um, we are to we are to treat every person that's that's uh, that's a key interpretive move here every person as a king. Do you want to add anything to that, Kelly? Um, I guess the only thing I would say is what's amazing about this is that the king. This isn't someone who doesn't know. Um, how to do this or has refused to do it, meaning Jesus. This is how he lived his life. So the king and the judge, Jesus, actually lived this life out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get to thinking about this, Kelly. I don't know if you do this. This is, uh, this is I think, in part, an experience that Jesus learned with his mother. I, I believe that Joseph died and that, the, that Jesus and his brothers and sisters, who are a handful— um, to use Jewish categories, the first century, they would have been considered orphans. And so uh, mm-hmm. Jesus not only practiced this, he knew this sort of experience. He knew what it was to be visited mm-hmm. when he was young or at some age. He knew what it was like for his brothers and sisters to benefit from the uh, generosity of other people and the kindness and visitations. Or perhaps... He, he didn't know this. Perhaps he knew the rough side of this, that people ignored them or mistreated them. That's interesting. I had not thought of that. That's really yeah. interesting. Uh, because Mary, um, you know, I, I find this very interesting that James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter, you know, his famous passage in James 1, 
uh, says that pure religion and undefiled before God is to is to care for the widows and orphans. So that that's the sort of um, uh, approach I'm bringing into this. So it was just a thought that came to my mind. I've never I've never brought this up. I wonder if Ben uh, Ben if you have anything to add uh, to this. Um. I think what I think what Kelly said I would I would affirm a hundred percent. The thing that has kind of crossed my mind, the question that comes to me: Who are the truly righteous? Um, because Jesus keeps addressing, and the righteous will answer him: um, those who thought that they were righteous but turned out not to be because of their lack for the care of the of the poor and needy. Uh, and Jesus seems to be saying that those who in fact do these things are doing them unto me and therefore will be found to be the ultimate righteous ones um, on the last day. So kind of reversing, at least in their world, who was really righteous. Mm-hmm. So the really righteous are the people who, okay, go ahead, you fill that in. The really righteous yeah. are those. The, the truly righteous are the ones who uh, fee, uh, clothe the naked, feed for, um, who are tending to the needs of the least of these. Uh, because they are doing them unto the king, as what Kelly was alluding to. They're they're treating them as kings themselves. You know, it's fascinating in the in the New Testament. For all our our chat as Protestants, post Luther, post Calvin, in the five hundredth year of the anniversary of the Reformation, where we emphasize justification by faith, there is not one judgment scene in the entire New Testament where anyone is judged on the basis of whether they believed or not. But every mm-hmm. judgment scene is based on works. And, uh, you know, and works has become a negative term for many in the Reformation because it was a reactionary term or it, it was something they reacted to. So um, what you're getting at here is the, is the truly righteous are people whose lives witness to the kind of life Jesus has called them to be. So this yeah. isn't something that they've earned. Uh, you know, it's something that is a characteristic. It's a part of their virtue pattern that they are uh, good people who respond to those in need. Well, uh, I would like to uh, ask, I think, the critical question on this one. And in the history of interpretation, Ben, maybe you can you all correct me on this. Uh Back in my Ph.D. days, I read a German dissertation by Johannes Friedrich called Gott im Bruder, and it was God in, the, in, in our brother, in a brother, in which he sorted out the history of interpretation. And uh, my memory serves me uh, that it was unusual. It is an unusual interpretation. It's a bit of an innovative interpretation to think that brother here refers to ordinary human being who's suffering, but rather, in the history of interpretation, the brother, and then therefore today, the sister, are those who have been sent by Jesus. In other words, this is responding to missionaries. This is how people respond to followers of Jesus. So Jesus is saying you um, uh, uh, that you are righteous, you righteous ones, you who are truly righteous, are those who have responded to me when you have seen fellow Christians, fellow servants of Christ, fellow missionaries, apostles, pastors, teachers, etc., those who've been sent on mission and responded to them 
uh, with kindness and generosity because of their persecution and they ended up being marginalized and persecuted and imprisoned and therefore hungry and naked. So that's been a standard interpretation. And I wonder, I, I think we can start with Ben and um, I wonder uh, how you respond to that, that interpretive move uh, because that is an unusual move today, but it certainly hasn't been unusual in the history of the church. Yeah, the <clears throat> excuse me. The the research that I've done suggests that that was actually the dominant position by the church um, for at least fifteen to sixteen hundred years, if not even longer. Uh, that was just exactly how you articulated that this was. These were meant to be the apostles. That the you know the apostles Jesus had sent the apostles out, and how those in in Israel received the apostles is how they were to receive um, uh, him, or like they were receiving him. Uh, and basically, they kind of took that position on this to mean that any missionaries that represented Christ among the other nations, uh, how they were treated um, is essentially what this passage was, was talking about. Uh, and they interpret nations literally there, meaning like going out into other countries. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that, I think that's another key part is they, they interpret it to be all the other nations or countries that were in existence where missionaries would go to uh, spread and proclaim the gospel. Uh, and you're right that, that I think there's a, a, a glimmer of, of, of a new or a different type of interpretation, one that I think we all resonate with now um, uh, in the beginning of the 19th century, but it hasn't come into fashion until about the 20th century, uh, that it's not talking about missionaries, uh, but brothers and sisters, uh, especially since the, the common word uh, used elsewhere in Matthew, kind of Adelphoi, uh, is not used in this passage, uh, is meaning basically everyone, uh, any person who is in need, any of the poor, any of the hungry, any of the sick and the naked who you encounter, whether Christian or not, um, should be receiving your service on account of who Christ is. Ben, what did you mean when you said the word, are you saying the word brothers, Adelphoi, is not used in this passage or is used in this passage? In, in 2545, uh, uh, Adelphoi is dropped in, 20, oh, in 2545. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, we're sometimes okay. used elsewhere to suggest that it, it's meaning a a um, a missionary or something. Anybody, like that. yeah. Well, yes. in, in verse 40, uh, yes. whenever you did the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, and then that would be implied for the least of these down in 45. And the standard historical interpretation then is that the word brothers, when you examine it in Matthew, always refers to followers of Jesus and not human beings in general. So yes. that's been the history of interpretation, or the standard in interpretation in history, is that this referred to uh, those people who are followers of Jesus and responding to the followers of Jesus, as happens at the end of chapter 10, when you give one of these, my missionaries in a sense, um, a cup of cold water in my name, you're, you know, you're going to get the, a reward. So, yeah. um, so that's been the history. Now, I, I wonder if it, we've, we've talked quite a bit here and we've, uh, we've not allowed uh, Kelly to chime in. I wonder if Kelly has anything to say at this point. The only thing I would say, Scott, is um, the debate is really interesting in the sense that it's not like, if when I read through, for example, Klein Snodgrass's book, he identifies I think four different ways that this has been interpreted. It's um, you know maybe it's the final judgment of all people, um, 
maybe it's judgment of Christians only, maybe, you know, et cetera. And he focuses less time on what the, um, who those brothers are that, um, that he's referring to there. And so I just, it's the debate to me is the most interesting. I don't totally know how to sort it out yet, but, um, I certainly have heard it more in my experience refer to everyone. Yeah. Well, is this the standard, uh, what you're saying, Kelly, is the standard interpretation today. Uh, almost everywhere I go, it is assumed that, uh, that least of these, my, the least of these is even the expression because they don't even want to use brothers. The least of these is anyone who is marginalized. And the implication is that how you treat the least of these, anyone marginalized, is how you treat Jesus. And therefore, uh, in a sense, the judgment is based on compassion toward the marginalized people of our world. That's, that is so now standardized in interpretation that, as I said earlier, people look at me like I'm from the moon when I suggest otherwise. Do you well, think, Scott, though, that like a lot of the the ways that you hear that today are take almost taking that out of even the judgment sense and just saying this is the way we should treat the poor and vulnerable and is sort of even disconnected from the idea that that's what judgment will be based on? Because that's how I hear it more is how you, you know, this is how we treat the poor here. Look at this parable, almost like it's being disconnected from the context of this parable, which is judgment. No, that's a good observation. You're a- absolutely right. Is that is that many people do disconnect it from judgment. They don't even like the idea of a final judgment, and they don't. They especially don't like the idea of a judgment based on this kind of works. Uh, so yes, I think you're right. I think that is uh, how many people read the parable. So there's a double whammy uh, disconnecting it from the world of Jesus. Um, I, I am one who believes that uh, that word brothers does refer to followers of Jesus who have been sent by Jesus, but I, I don't think that that means that uh, Christians shouldn't be concerned socially and in justice for the poor of this world. There's so much evidence in the Bible from beginning, especially from Deuteronomy on, uh, Exodus on, that we are to are to have compassion for people who are slaves, for prisoners, for those who are poor, for those who don't have enough food, uh, that anybody who would suggest otherwise is just failing to read the Bible. Uh, but this, that, uh, so in other words, I think that we could extrapolate from this, but I do think that if there is something uh, magical about this parable. When Jesus identifies himself with people, uh, that uh, that you are to see, depending on how you interpret brothers and sisters, you are to see in these people, the least of these people, you are you are to see Jesus or you are to treat them as you would treat Jesus because they represent him. That's a, that is a, a really powerful idea. It's not that far, although C.S. Lewis had it in a broader sense when he saw human beings is that if you knew, what these human beings would become, uh, you would realize that you're dealing with gods and goddesses. Mm -hmm. It is an elevation of the significance of human beings. And for my understanding, for uh, the, an elevation of the significance of followers of Jesus in the plan of God in this world, that these are 
very special people. Uh, and that's why I get bothered when people criticize the church, when they criticize Christians, it becomes almost the way to talk is to be critical of Christians. I think that's when we, we have to stand up for our brothers and sisters as the least of these who represent Jesus in the world. So now, um, I wonder if Kelly has any uh, final thoughts or if Ben has, why, why don't we start with Kelly? Kelly, uh, for me, and I know for you, because uh, I know enough about you, you're concerned about how we live this passage. So I wonder if you could uh, say a few things about how you think we should live this out. Yeah, I guess I, I would start with kind of where what I said, something I said a little while ago, which is, um, you know, Jesus was saying something more about things than just judgment, although that is a big part of it. And that is, he's inviting his disciples to live in this way now, to live in the kingdom now. This is what the kingdom looks like. And it's now. And so I guess the question that I think this parable presents us with is, do we, as part of our everyday life, treat, and I mean this with our words and our thoughts and our actions, the most vulnerable and despised people in our culture with the dignity and honor of a king? And not just any king, but King Jesus. Um, And I think that this doesn't mean, to Jesus, this didn't mean for two hours on a Tuesday night, you serve in this way, although that matters. But he meant along the way, along as you're walking along in your life every day, if you see a person who is vulnerable, do you serve them and treat them with the honor and dignity of a king? So I feel like out of this parable, the thing that I'm carrying away and want to continue to have sort of in my soul, in my mind, is, is this the way I'm living? And not even because I want to be judged this way or the other, although, you know, certainly that's true, but because um, I want to confer to the extent I have that ability and to the extent people have that ability to do to me the dignity and honor of a king on everyone I see. Yeah, that's really good. You just preached a little sermon. It's <laughs> yeah. very, very well done. Yeah, that was great. It reminded me of something um, I heard Haddon Robinson preach on this parable once, and he made the observation about how both the category of the sheep and the goats were both surprised. And I think that goes to say, mm. um, to your point about it's so natural that like your when your life becomes you know so focused on treating everybody as if they were a king. Um, when it comes to the time as they use judgment in the story that they were surprised by the fact that they did it. When, wait, when, when did I do that? And yeah, um, yeah. I think that's, that's a great point, Kelly. Ben, I wonder if you have anything. I think I would affirm everything that's been said. Uh, I think Kelly's right on uh, with her observations. Uh, I think this is where the categories that, that Matthew Bates in his, in his new book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, um, has, has been helpful for me, at least in reading this passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, this isn't just some uh, soft humanitarianism. Uh, the way that we treat the poor is so tied in with the idea of Christology. And of course, this parable leads out uh, not with conventional parables, where it's kind of using earthly observations and then taking you into another dimension, but it starts immediately with this kind of eschatological event, uh, where Jesus, who is the Son of Man, uh, comes with 
kind of the heavens down to earth and lead you into action, what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And I think um, this idea of allegiance to this king and what does allegiance to this king really entail, uh, and that is being with the poor uh, and making sure that their needs are being tended to, giving your life uh, uh, um, for them to make sure that they are receiving what, what they need. Uh, that's very, very helpful for me. And so I think the two have to come together um, in terms of where, where we, what we believe, uh, who we believe Jesus to be, uh, how he lived his life, and then, of course, what that means for us as his disciples. Um, and just even going back to the different interpretations of this as missionaries or, or not, um, you know, certainly in verse 40, I think you alluded to this, Scott, um, uh, it, it says, and the king will answer to them, truly, I tell you, just as you did to one of the least of these, uh, who are the members of my family. Uh, so you can definitely get the impression that this is, you know, kind of the people who have been sent by Jesus. But then later on in 45, it just says, and truly, I tell you, just as you did to one of the least of these with no qualification, just the least of these. Um, and so I think Christians, whatever their interpretation, if it leans towards missionaries or not, are really without excuse. Once we look at the end of the passage uh, for saying that all people who are in need uh, deserve our care and attention. And, um, and, and I like this, uh, bringing this idea in from Matthew Bates about uh, uh, allegiance, because the parable, I mean, really, treating people, treating missionaries, or treating those sent by Jesus, treating those who, are, who identify themselves as connected to Jesus, or other people with compassion and justice and mercy and relief and benevolence, uh, this is what it means to be allegiant to Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Those who say, well, they're not brothers and sisters in Christ, so therefore I don't care what happens to them, that's a complete failure for, yeah. uh, of following Jesus. That's not being allegiant to Jesus. That's, uh, that's being selfish or something like that. So One I, thing I, I, say, yeah. I would say this too is, is I, I know people— um, you know, and and I and I, I share in it too that that struggle with their faith uh, to know that if God is truly present in their lives, and and I just look at a couple different areas. I mean, you know, Jesus is is with us no matter what you want to think about it in terms of just participating in the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Uh, we experience a, a death and resurrection with Him in baptism, and then of course we see His face in the face of the poor, of the least of these. And so one thing that I've always challenged, just even people in my church, I said if you if you're genuinely struggling. Uh, with with knowledge or, or an awareness of the presence of Christ in your life, why don't you read this parable and then go and be with the poor, tend to their needs, and then come back and tell me if you have not been with Christ or Christ has not revealed himself to you in some profound way. Yeah, that's a good good pastoral strategy, Ben, for people who are struggling is to find the presence of Christ in the face of others. Um, and I think that's a, a, a great biblical theme, and it's a great uh, theme to finish our, our parable on. This, uh, this parable, uh, like all the other parables, um, teaches us to imagine a world, but like other parables, imagine a world where we treat other people with justice and compassion and mercy. But at the same time, it's a parable that we go, yeah, that's, uh, we figured this parable out. No. Uh, this parable will figure you out. This parable comes back to haunt. It comes back to speak to us and say to us, um, 
who are the least that you need to be responding to. And that's, that's the challenge of this parable, and it's been a challenge from the beginning. The churches of the early centuries did a great job responding, and I, I find the current generation of, of evangelical Christians um, shockingly creative and fully committed and on board with one way of reading this parable, and it's encouraging to me to see the number of young Christians who are committed to responding to those in need with mercy and justice and compassion. So uh, I think that this is a great parable, and I'll, I'll hand it over to Chaz to close us out. All right, will do. So thanks, Ben and Kelly, for joining us today. It was fun to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you, as always, to our listeners for joining us, man. I hope you were encouraged and challenged as I feel like I'm saying. I get I say get to say after the end of, of every episode. And, um, man, just new insights and new approaches and ways to maybe look at this parable that you hadn't considered or thought about. And um, what is clear, I know for me walking out, is you know, we always kind of try to bring it back and talk about how the kingdom took root then. It was through generosity. It was through care, especially for the vulnerable. And um, we hope that you continue to seek God and build the kingdom today with that same um, generosity and compassion like Scott talked about. So um, thanks again for joining us. We only have one more conversation uh, about the last parable that we're going to talk about. So the way that you make sure you don't miss that conversation is take a chance to subscribe however you get your podcast, and we'd love to join you and have you be a part of that conversation. So thanks again for joining. We look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.